Welcome to Snack Break. We speak to experts mostly about policy, but also about snacks. We're so excited to have Dr. Peter Krause here today, who's an assistant professor of political science uh, at Boston College and a research affiliate uh, at MIT. Peter, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, now, you have, uh, you have a new book I want to talk about, uh, and uh, I have it right here. It's called uh, Rebel Power, uh, you know, Why National Movements Compete, Fight, and Win. Okay, let's, let's, get, to the, let's get to the theory of it. Uh, and, and, and before we get to your theory, I want to tell you about my theory, the snack break oh. theory of why national movements compete, fight, and win. Are you can't, ready? Can't wait. Okay, so national movements compete, fight, and win because if, if they have bigger guns, mm. then they have more power. If they have more power, people fear them more. If people fear them more, uh, people respect them more. If people respect them more, they give them what they want. Hmm. And voila, you have a nation. Okay, your turn. Um, I think that there's maybe a little something to it, but when I talk about power, it's not just having a bigger gun, it's a lot about the internal politics of a movement. Basically, when you have something like the Zionist movement or the Palestinian movement or the Irish national movement, you have a lot of different groups who want the same thing. They want a state but they differ in who they want to rule that state. And so they're simultaneously kind of cooperating with one another towards this broad goal, as well as competing with one another internally. And so to me, it's all about the balance of power inside the movement. And that's what ultimately lets them not just compete, but ultimately fight and win. So what, what, what is it? What, what allows them, what gets them from, say, relative obscurity to getting a nation? I mean, you, you go through four case studies in this book. You've got the Algerian case study, Israel, yeah. Palestinian and Northern Irish. Yeah. Uh, why do people win? Yeah, so they win when you have what I would call a hegemonic movement, which means that you have one dominant group or one dominant organization inside the movement. What happens then is you have a cohesive strategy, you have clear messaging, you have the ability to focus externally against the regime that you're fighting to try to get independence. Whereas if you have a fragmented insurgency or fragmented movement with multiple groups competing, what happens is they spend much of their time and effort fighting against each other and competing against each other, trying to kind of position themselves to rule the new state instead of actually achieving it. And so that's the big problem. So the argument that I have is it's about the balance of power inside the movement, how many groups there are, but more importantly, how many significant groups there are. What about democracy here? Don't we want democracy sometimes? Don't we want a lot of people competing? This is one of the big challenges, right? Think about it in terms of democracy or in terms of, you know, free market. We have businesses competing for your dollar or in the case of democracy, parties competing for your votes. In the case of a national movement, in the period before independence, a movement actually wants hegemony with one dominant group to be able to be more effective because otherwise, again, much of the violence that they use is against each other as opposed to against the external enemy. The challenge, as you're alluding to, is that when you have a hegemonic movement, and let's say they get statehood, the problem is that dominant party is very likely to say, hey, I want to have the presidency. I want to have the position of prime minister. And when I'm writing the Constitution, I'm going to write it in a way that's very favorable to me, which oftentimes means restricting, restricting the ability of other states um, to intervene, restricting the ability of other parties to legally run for office. And so you get things like the FLN in Algeria that runs Algeria to this day over 60 years after independence. You get things like in the Zionist movement, even though it's a democracy, uh, the labor Zionists running Israel for basically 30 years years after independence. So what I find is not just that hegemonic movements win, but that the hegemonic groups who dominate those movements dominate the government of their new states for decades afterwards. So if you want a democracy, it's potentially good to have a fragmented insurgency movement because you've got pluralism, you've got multiple groups competing, but the problem is that makes it less likely you get independence in the first place. So it's kind of a catch-22. So that's horrible, right, for U.S. foreign policy because we're trying to do this everywhere. We're trying, we're trying to have, create, institute, uh, encourage dem democracy. Uh, democratic principles in a whole bunch of places. I mean, if you take Syria, for instance, or Iraq, 
uh, or Libya. Uh, what you're saying is, is that the democratic principles we're encouraging also simultaneously encourage instability in the state itself. 100%, and even beyond that, also encourage violence to some extent. So let's look at Afghanistan. The United States is simultaneously, over the past decade or so, trying to prevent terrorism and insurgent violence in Afghanistan, trying to have uh, an ineffective Taliban, a Taliban that's ultimately defeated, and trying to help democratize Afghanistan. The problem is those call for very different internal balances of power inside the insurgent movement. If you want to prevent violence, you actually want to fight against a hegemonic movement, because now they don't have the incentive to outbid or compete with one another and launch more attacks against you. But if you are trying to democratize, you actually want to have a fragmented insurgency, a fragmented movement. But if you're ultimately trying to prevent victory, you also want fragmented, not hegemonic. And so the challenge is, do you want to stop violence and terrorism? Do you want to prevent victory for the insurgents? Or do you want to democratize? Those call for very different strategies. And yet the United States simultaneously seems to want all three of those things. And what my book argues is they can't exactly have it. You can't have your cake and eat it too. Not in this case. And so you said it encourages, you mentioned violence and terrorism. Yeah. Uh, what, what do you mean by that? Some, some groups are violent. Some, why, why are some groups violent? Why are some groups employing terrorist tactics? Mm -hmm. So there's a great saying uh, that I take from a guy named Rufus Miles where he says, where you stand depends on where you sit. And his argument is about, within the American government, where you stand on a certain issue depends on where you sit in government. Are you the Secretary of State? Are you inside the Department of Defense? That's going to dictate to some extent how you see the world and what your policy is. I take that concept and I apply it to insurgencies and national movements, where I say where you stand on the use of violence or negotiating with the state depends on where you sit in the hierarchy. So think about a national movement like Fatan Hamas or the Haganah and the Orgun inside the Zionist movement or the IRA and INLA and the Irish national movement and rank the groups in terms of how powerful they are, how many members they have, how much money they have, these types of things. And then the group that's on top, they're feeling pretty good. They feel like, I like the status quo because I'm getting kind of the leadership position right now, and more importantly, I'm in line to inherit the spoils of victory if we get independence right now. If you're a weaker challenger, you look around and you say, I might maybe don't want victory right now because what's going to happen is once we get victory, I'm not going to be in line to get office, wealth, and status in the new state, and in fact, this top dominant group might repress me. And so in some of my research through interviews and archives, I find members of the Palestinian National Movement, of the Zionists, and others saying things like, maybe we don't want to win right now because our group isn't in position to inherit the spoils of victory, maybe we should hold off on the British evacuating the Palestine mandate. Maybe we should hold off on overthrowing King Hussein and Jordan until we're in position to win. So, does, and, and the sitting back, but that's, that's different from, from being more violent. Does, does this also inspire them to, to try and take down the top dog, even though they know the top dog is competing for the same, or is striving for the same goal? 100%. So in the Algerian National Movement, you had the FLN, the group that leads the state of Algeria today. When they started out, they weren't the strongest group. In fact, what they did is they physically eliminated most of their rivals, who were, again, Algerians fighting for an Algerian state, and yet they basically said to them, either merge into us or we're going to physically eliminate you. And they did. They fought a very long, bloody kind of civil conflict against the MNA. In the case of the Palestinians, there wasn't as much infighting between groups, but what they would do is they would try to outcompete one another by doing more more and more escalatory attacks against the Israelis, and in that way, try to get market share or more supporters for their organization. Now, you so, so that there's a saying that terrorism is the tool of the weak. So what you're saying here is, are you you're saying that it is sometimes that they are uh, the weak groups are more likely to use violence or terrorist tactics so that they can 
rise up uh, within, within, the, within their kind of fractious political movement. Right. The difference I would have from people who say generally terrorism is a tool of the weak is they're thinking about weak vis-a-vis -vis the state that they're fighting against. For me, it's weak or strong vis-a-vis -vis other groups within their movement or insurgency. That, at the end of the day, is how these groups think. We as outsiders are often saying, oh, if there's an attack against the United States, it must be all about the United States. What I find is, again and again, these groups day-to-day -day are thinking more about their internal rivals. Just like in the U.S., the Republican Party is thinking about the Democrats and vice versa, even for their foreign policy. It's not just always about what's going on out there. And, okay. And so then, uh, once, once they have, so say they, say they have an attack and they, they, they win a little, or they, they, become, they become the, the number one uh, in, the, in their movement, yeah. do, they, do they then moderate? What happens? Do they, do they continue? What's, Sometimes they do. So that's in many ways one of the key findings of my book is that we often think about groups in terms of, oh, they have a set ideology. This is a moderate group. This is an extreme group. This is a religious group. This is a secular group. What I find again and again is, again, where you stand depends on where you sit. When you change your position of power in the hierarchy, it does lead to groups changing. And it's not just becoming more moderate. I've seen groups who used to be the top dog who all of a sudden go to the fringes and all of a sudden they become more violent. And you apply this to all national movements. The book is why national movements compete fight and win. Now I'm a patron. Yeah. Okay, I love my country. Okay. Did America do this? Um, America did in the following way. So we think about the American Revolution vis-a-vis -vis the British. Um, one of the reasons that I would argue they were successful and we have the United States of America is because we have a hegemonic national movement. You have the Continental Congress. You have the Continental Army under George Washington. Even though you have local state militias and the Minutemen here in Massachusetts, they're generally paying attention to whatever the Continental Congress and the Continental Army is saying in terms of battlefield tactics, things of that nature. It also made a big difference in terms of the French. Many people would say, hey, one of the reasons we have independent U.S. is because of French involvement. And I would agree, but I would say that what happened is the U.S. had a single organization that was going to the French, Ben Franklin, yeah. Hegemon, yeah. Thomas Jefferson, etc., asking for aid, instead of various individual colonies or different militias asking for aid. If that happens, all of a sudden it's like Syria today, where you have hundreds of insurgent groups getting support from multiple different states, and it makes it impossible for them to have a cohesive fight. It's one of the reasons that Assad is still in power now. Got another question for you. Please. Okay, so let's talk about terrorism. Okay. Why are terrorists so mean? Why are they so bad? Okay, because are they just insane and evil? Because what you're saying is that there's almost a strategic element here, that there's a rationality to terrorism. Sure. Uh, that you could use terrorism as a way uh, to be effective and to strengthen your organization. Yeah, so I think that one of the things we have to do, and I think for many people this can be challenging, is to separate the moral aspect of it and how we condemn terrorism versus thinking about the rationality behind it. Because when I look at the acts of ISIS, I have no problem saying um, that's evil, that's terrible, it should be absolutely condemned. But it doesn't mean that I think that everyone who does what they're doing is just crazy mentally. In fact, if you look at studies of terrorists, you know, 3% or fewer of them have diagnosed mental conditions. So what they're doing when they're doing a beheading or they're doing someone being crucified in a town square is they're following certain terrorist strategies. They're trying to provoke an indiscriminate reaction that polarizes their local population. They're trying to intimidate the local population to not cooperate with their enemies. So even though the things they do are incredibly evil to attack civilians like that, there can be rationality and thought behind it. Now, is it helps them, helps them in what ways? Like does it help them get recruits? Does it help them actually win in the short term? I mean, my, my feeling is that they would lose in the long term, right? Because who wants to live under a, you know, under those sorts of people? 
Yeah, look, I think there's a very small percentage of people, if you look at public opinion polls throughout the Middle East or elsewhere, you know, over 90, 95% of people there reject ISIS and its message. So it's not going to, I think, ever be uh, a majority of people supporting an extreme message like that. But there is a smaller percentage of people who either agree with their idea of founding the quote-unquote caliphate or feel like they want to struggle against what they see as the near enemy, some of these corrupt rulers in the Middle East or the far enemy like the United States. And so what ISIS is doing is they're competing against al-Qaeda. They're competing against other jihadi groups for those members who would potentially join any group, but maybe they want to go where the action is. And in fact, it's not just ISIS. In the case of the IRA and some of their competitors, I would interview people who would say, well, I went to this group because they had all the guns. The other groups had all the typewriters. And so, you know, if you're a young man or a young woman, you want to go where the action is. And so groups are trying to do this type of stuff. Do you, do you ever feel like you have a conflict of interest here? Because you study terrorism. I do. So if, if terrorism is less popular, you're out of a job. <laughs> Um, I don't consider that a conflict of interest at all because guess what? My initial training was as a historian okay. and we have more than enough terrorism to study for all time as a history major. Um, my book itself, you know, the Palestinian national movement is still ongoing. There's still somewhat of a struggle to make Northern Ireland part of Ireland, but I have more than enough, enough cases of violence uh, that I will not be put out of business doing this. And at the end of the day, if I am put out of business and there's no more terrorism, I will rejoice, be happy. <laughs> I can teach about nationalism. I can teach about political science You can study broadly. peace. I do study peace. In yeah. fact, a lot of this is about how you get peace and how you stop terrorism. So so I'd be just fine with that occurring. Although, unfortunately, I don't think we're going to see that anytime soon. Okay. We're going to do some rapid-fire questions. Bring it on. So uh, what percent chances that we'll see a Middle East peace between the Palestinians and Israelis uh, brokered in Trump's first term? Under 5%, maybe under 1%. What is the most effective national movement in history? Hmm. Zionist movement is quite effective. Algerians movement quite effective. Um, both were able to get a state, even though in the case of the Zionists, their population was scattered all over the world. So that's a pretty impressive one. What is the one piece of advice you'd offer Trump on his serious strategy? Don't have dreamy goals of uniting the rebe rebels and overthrowing Assad. Don't have optimistic dreams about Assad becoming a benevolent dictator. Um, push for stability, but also realizing that stability is what helps the people there. What are we not paying enough attention to? Uh, in counterterrorism. We're not paying attention to the internal politics of insurgencies and national movements. We're not recognizing that from the perspective of terrorists or insurgents. They often are looking at the groups around them, not at us. Cake or pie? Pie. What kind of pie? Cherry pie. Good. All right, now, now that we're on the topic of food, yeah. this is snack break. Ooh. And uh, it's no surprise to me that you're a man who enjoys forest fruits. I do. So uh, I gather them daily. We, yeah, I forage. I mean, it's kind of like foraging. <laughs> For facts, am I wrong in National Archives? It's very similar. You never know what you're going to find, but every once in a while you find that ripe fruit or that ripe piece of evidence and it makes you weak. And you're delving into the, just the barbaric woods there trying to search for these things. So we have some raspberries here for you on a, oh. on a silver plate. I've been looking at those the whole interview. Uh, yeah, feel free to jump. I'm at just jumping. Oh, okay, great, right great. Um, yeah. Raspberries mm. are your favorite snack. They are, you know, it's, um, it's kind of a healthy snack, but the texture's great, the taste is great. Yeah. And you know, it links me to a childhood memory. My neighbor next door, had this big kind of raspberry patch in her backyard. And so when I was a kid, we just go out and eat them. And I think it was my first uh, experience with kind of like picking out and eating all the food I could. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I fell in love with raspberries. So now when I eat them, I think about, you know, when I was six years old. Now, I, I imagine there's nothing like just biting into a whole raspberry, but do you sometimes go for, you know, raspberry jam or raspberry mm. cobbler, or raspberry pie or raspberry... Does raspberry pie exist? We could do it. Okay. Okay. We could do. We could. We could have a bake off. Uh, that sounds pretty good. I'm not a good baker, but I'll try your raspberry yeah, pie. That'd be great. Can I ask you a question? Please. You study rebellions. I do. Which is the most rebellious berry? 
Hmm. Huckleberry sounds kind of rebellious. Montana, Montana's always got to keep an eye on them. The um, yeah, I don't know. Do you consider like those pomegranate seeds? Like oh. probably not a berry, but then like borderline, it you know, gray area. how they're marketed. So also kind of rebellious. You never know which category they're going to go into. Peter Krause, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, great talking with All you. All right. right.